And when these scrubs come out, this means I'm running out of scrubs. This is like the last one in the closet. So need to go home and do laundry. That's another reason to get out of here quick. Okay, so pulmonary embolisms. So the biggest thing with pulmonary embolism is that you need to understand is that the patient is going to present with one of the, the virtual triad stuff, right? So hypercoagulable state, you have to be thinking about it. Anybody with a venous injury or venous stasis, we have to be thinking about it, okay? Another thing is that lately what I found a lot of my pulmonary embolisms, I would say the last six or seven pulmonary embolisms that I found is that just out of pure suspicion that the heart rate is high. That's it. Like, oh, that's weird that your heart rate is still high and your O2 stat is 94. All of them are COVID positive, unfortunately. So I'm sure there's some sort of correlation, but we're not going to officially know it until like later on down the lane anyway. So at the end of the day, with most of medicine and definitely emergency medicine, you got to go with your gut. You got to understand, okay, this is an issue. Something's happening. Something's not right. We never, ever, ever discharge anybody with bad battle signs. You don't do that. Uh, I don't, if the heart rate is like 104, you may fly with it. 105, there's something cooking. You got to think about it. You don't discharge anybody with a fever. Um, even if it's at the end of your shift, sign it out to somebody. Print out the papers and say, look, as soon as the fever goes down, they can go home. Um, no, no crazy amount of high blood pressure. Anybody with a blood pressure more than 180 over 100, I don't discharge them either. I make sure I bring down their blood pressure, whatever it is that you need to do to, to you know, make it look nice and clean. Um, because if you're not able to bring down that blood pressure, they can't go home, right? That, that makes no sense because clearly no oral, no oral medication has been working for this patient, okay? Uh, if they're breathing fast, if the O2 saturation is below 96% or 92%, it's not something you want to play with either. So uh, keep that in mind. And that's exactly what happens with these patients that come in with pulmonary embolisms, right? They're going to be hypoxic. They're going to be tachycardic. They might even be febrile, okay? They may even have a leukocytosis. Obviously, they're going to have some difficulty breathing. The biggest complaint with pulmonary embolism is chest pain, okay? That's when we, again, go into our history taking, right? When did the pain start? What type of pain is it? Does it hurt when you breathe in? Does it feel better when you breathe out? Like, what else? Uh, have you had any recent travel? Are there, is there any history of taking hormonal medications, right? So I told you in the boards, they absolutely love to give pulmonary embolisms and DVTs to young females that smoke and take birth control pills. They hate them. They hate them. And so that's the biggest thing, two big risk factors. You're literally asking for a pulmonary embolism if you're uh, on birth control and you're smoking. It's over. Like, it's not going to happen. You're definitely going to get pulmonary embolism, okay? The other thing that's always important to ask these patients, do you have any leg pain, any leg swelling, okay? Because 50% of these patients that do have a pulmonary embolism have a DVT as well in place. So you have to keep that in mind as well. I don't think she's ready for this class yet. She's like trying to get She don't want this. Um, so, no, I'm sorry, I'm being mean, I'm sorry. Okay, so pulmonary embolism management. So what do you do for this patient? What do we got to work them up with? Now, things always come up with like, okay, I'm going to tell you the trick to the D-dimer. I told you again, the D-dimer is a very sensitive test, but it's non-specific. It's basically going to tell us that there's a body here and there's this laser. What the heck? Wow. All I see is like, uh, make me look bad out here, Ray. What's going on? Why did it do that? Oh, no, I think I just have a fat thumb. That's all it is. Anyway, okay, so um, 
what do you do now for this patient? So again, D-dimers, right? So it's basically going to tell you that there's this patient here in front of you, and if the D-dimer is positive, it'll tell you there's a clot here somewhere. But when a patient has chest pain, what are we most worried about, right? We're most worried about a clot in the lungs, right? That's it. Now, it could be elevated from the IV that you started. It could be elevated from the pain they're having. It could be elevated from the stress that they're having. A D-dimer could be releasing all sorts of inflammatory responses in your body, right? So who do you order a D-dimer on if it's not that specific? It's the people you think don't have a pulmonary embolism, okay? So that way, what you could say is that they came in with chest pain, and I did a D-dimer, so I knew at least it's not a clot. And, and then if you want to get sensitive and specific about it, I know specifically it's not a clot in the lungs. So that's important because then it becomes a game because it's so sensitive. Now, if you think with somebody that will probably have a clot, don't do a D-dimer. Do the scan, right? If they're coming in and they are somebody that smokes and they take birth control pills or, you know, they're tall, thin, and white guy, whatever it is that the, the, I think the triad is of somebody... Um, you know, that has a pulmonary embolism, or oh, that's a pneumothorax, my bad. Um, or oh, actually, no, pulmonary embolism too. Smoker, tall, definitely think about pulmonary embolism as well too, along with pneumothorax. Um, so those are the people that you want to like not waste your time on a D-dimer. And the test will test you on this, that when do you know how to utilize the sources that are available to you, the resources that are available to you. You have to start using your brain. Okay, not everything is gonna be in WikiEM or, or Hippocrates and up to date. Okay, you have to start using your mind as well. That's gonna be really important. So if you don't suspect a D if you don't suspect the pulmonary embolism, then do the D dimer to show that it is not a pulmonary embolism. This chest pain is not an MI because the troponin is negative. This chest pain is not a pulmonary embolism because the D dimer is negative. Because we know that when that's negative, it's probably not a pulmonary embolism. Okay, so that's when I would tell you to pick and choose a D dimer. We still do need to know the CBC as well because if you are going to put the patient on any anticoagulant, um, good morning. I love that. Every time you walk in, it's like a runway for you. <laughs> This is me off because I feel like I belong on a runway. <laughs> and I'm just like, oh, okay. They didn't, they didn't even acknowledge me. Just like, <laughs> good morning. <laughs> After you turn, you look at me just like, good morning. <laughs> All right, we're done. I'm sorry, I turn into that when I drink this. All right. Now we can start the show. All right, so, so you do need a CBC, right? Because if we are going to put the patient on heparin or, or Lovenox, we gotta make sure that they're not gonna develop heparin-induced thrombocytopenia. How do you do that if you don't have the thrombocytes, right? So you need the platelets. Or if they're bleeding and their HNH is low, now you cannot like put them on anticoagulant right off the back, right? We have to think of other ways to get that clot out of there, maybe a thrombectomy or thrombolysis, depending on different things that are available. So the CBC, that small of a test, something that gives you like seven different things total, is gonna be able to determine the treatment plan on this patient. That's what I've always said to everybody all the time. Anytime you come to me, in anything in life actually, if it doesn't change the treatment plan, if it doesn't change the management, don't do it, right? But the CBC does. And the CHEM-7 also does as well, because if there's any sort of renal failure, now I can't give you a Lovenox, right? 
that's important. So all these things make a huge difference. The PTT, 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 PTI, and R, all these things will make a difference as well because in case we need to put them on heparin and then put them on warfarin, then that's something. So the question always comes up, what about if I'm not going to give them that and this is somebody that is pretty good as far as a good patient for like one of the 10A inhibitors like Provaxa, Zeralta, or Eliquis that we love to use now. And all you really need is just a chemistry and you don't really need... Um, Coax. No, you don't really need coax, but then what if they don't do well with that medication? Now you have a baseline. So I would still get the PT, PTT, INRs in these patients, okay? Now, an EKG is important because one of the things that causes clots in the, in the heart is what? Atrial fibrillation, right? And you can, you can. It can go back and back. Just because blood flows one way doesn't mean on, on diastole, it doesn't go back the other way. It can definitely come back into the lungs as well, and that happens all the time. Or it could be AFib that the clot is just going through the system, goes through the, the lungs, goes through everything, doesn't stop and doesn't start, uh, you know, doesn't stop a, a, a clot or anything like that, it just keeps going through the system. You want to make sure that it's not AFib because that'll just keep flowing and flowing and flowing until it goes into the brain. So that's important as well. I'm so sorry. Yeah. I just lost my phone. I'm going to go. You're good. Do your thing, man. Don't worry about it. It's all recorded. You're chilling. I didn't want to keep You're fine. You're fine. It's okay. Yeah. All right. Um, so, um, the, the test that we can do, the initial study that will help you here is going to be a CT scan of the chest, right? Um, and they call it multiple things like a heli, helicycle exam and all these other different names. But at the end of the day, it's a CT scan with IV contrast. has to be with IV contrast. Now, who can you not do a CT scan with IV contrast? People that are allergic to iodine, right? Or supposedly allergic to iodine, right? But the other question that comes up is like, what about pregnant females? Right? Now, this goes two different ways. For people that are allergic to iodine and that are pregnant, the test, the exam, the pants want to do a VQ scan. However, the exposure radiation is the same in real life. Okay? They don't know that yet. The exam, the pants will not test you on something that isn't at least five years old and won't test, you on a, uh, won't test you on anything that's more than five years old, but won't test you on anything that isn't at least one year old that hasn't been out. Now, this thing has been out for a while. They're just lazy enough to not care, all right, and change that. So understand, in real life, there's no difference. And also, we shield the abdomen when we're doing a chest CT. You're still going to get radiation, absolutely going to get radiation. You're also going to get the same radiation when you do the VQ scan. The only difference is that we're not shooting dye through your kidneys. That's important too. So who are the other people that you cannot do a CT scan on? People in renal failure, right? Which is interesting because most of the time people with renal failure, sometimes they develop coagulopathy, so they probably develop pulmonary disease more often than anybody else. So keep that in mind. Why do I tell you this? Because there might be an exam question that comes up to you and it tells you all these wonderful things about the patient, and you know they have a pulmonary embolism, but the difference is going to be that they give you lab values. Whenever we give you a lab value, it's not for your entertainment. It's literally for you to make some sort of assessment on that, and then make some sort of management on that as well. So they'll tell you, yes, the patient has this and this, they have a pulmonary embolism, they went traveling, they're a smoker, they got everything. And you're thinking that the patient has pulmonary embolism. In fact, while you read the question, like, oh, this patient has a pulmonary embolism, and they'll tell you, the patient has a pulmonary embolism. And now you're kind of like, oh, good, now what? And then they'll tell you which one of the following images or which one of the following modalities should be used initially. And you're like, easy. Chest CT, no problem. Every day, all day, right? We do that. 
but then they'll tell you, okay, here are the following lab values. Okay, cool, D-dimer 500. All right, cool, that's elevated, I knew that, you didn't need to give me that. Okay, then the BUN is 62, and the creatinine is 1.9. Mildly elevated. They're like, oh, they're a little dehydrated. No, they're a little failing on their kidneys. And you can't, now what you're going to do is you're gonna send that chest CT with IV contrast through the kidneys and fail their kidneys even more. They wanna make sure you're on top of that. I'm telling you, it's the next level things that they're looking at. Now, this whole gold standard word doesn't exist, by the way. It's, what is a definitive test? What is a test that is the best modality for this patient? What is the best way we can find this? Okay, not the only way, not the first way, but the best way or the most definitive uh, modality of choice is going to be your CTN, oh, not CTN, your gold, gold standard will be the, the angiography. And that's just a catheterization. Of course, anything vascular, the best way to look at it is to shoot dye through it and to see how it lines up, right, or how it lights up in the, in the, uh, in the uh, fluorescein scan. Like, it, obviously, that's going to be the best. So anything, now you learn that anything that is vascular is going to be through angiography. Anything valvular in the heart is going to be echocardiogram. Almost all of that, okay? Now, these patients, unlike DVT patients where you can... Uh, discharge them if it's below the knee and, and you can do anticoagulants outpatient. Um, and these patients, though, pulmonary embolism, all of them get admitted. They all get admitted. Very, very important. So I just kind of went over the difference between CT versus VQ. CT obviously is a little bit more sensitive, more specific as well. Um, the other thing is that a VQ scan gives you like a really annoying impression. And what that means is the impression will tell you low probability, moderate probability, high probability, not there's a pulmonary embolism. That's what a CT scan gives you. And the reason is because when you do a VQ scan, it lights up an area that's supposed to light up or it doesn't light up. And it's just super confusing, and that's why we don't use VQ scan when people ask, like, well, why don't we just use it all the time? We're also very advanced now. Like, the amount of radiation that we release to get the proper image is nowhere near what we were doing in, like, in, in 2000s, even. Like, I'm talking about just 20 years ago we've changed this, we're able to now get a clear image with less irradiation. And, and yes, it costs a hell of a lot of money, but none of us pay for that. We're not there yet, okay? So just understand the difference now. All right, so congestive heart failure. This is gonna be classical symptoms, okay? It's why it's very important to be able to do a thorough examination of all your patients. It's why I rarely see students when they come through my rotation that they'll listen to the heart and lungs of a patient, but not look at the, I, I check the pedal pulses, I touch the legs of everybody in my patients, right? To see if there's any pitting edema, you never know, especially shortness of breath patients. Because when I tell you shortness of breath, one of your differentials has to be CHF. Doesn't matter who it is. Can a young person get CHF? Of course they can, but if they have a cardiomyopathy and you're the one that discovered it. Can an old person? Of course, they're literally built with it. It's come stock, right? So if somebody comes with shortness of breath, you have to listen to their lungs. And what are you looking for? Bibasilar rails, arouse, whatever you want to call them, right? If you don't know what arouse sound like, just think about, I think I may have gone over this with you. Like, yeah, you're going through the staircase and you're just, and that's literally what it sounds like. And there's really only three sounds or four sounds that you really need to know with the lungs, right? Rails for sure, because there's fluid. Bronchi, because there's probably like some sort of pneumonia or bronchitis. Wheezing, because of asthma. And then the fourth one is an absent breath sound because of pneumothorax. Really, other than that, you're good. And then everything else is made up sounds, to be honest with you. Like, I don't know where they're coming from, okay? So, again, bibasal arouse. 
shortness of breath or dyspnea on, on exertion, plus peripheral edema, that's CHF every day, all day, right? And then you're also going to hear the S3 sound. We know the S3 sound is created because there's excessive fluid hitting the walls of the heart, right? So it's doom, doom, doom. that first doom is the water or the fluid hitting the back of the, of the walls, and that's what you're hearing. It's not a heartbeat. It's something beating the heart, okay? That's, that's a good way to remember that as well. So you can hear Ronkai and Rails, but Rails is going to be more common, okay? Your chest x-ray will show you pulmonary uh, or pleural effusions. It'll show you curly B lines, okay? All these things are, are, are going to be pertinent on the chest x-ray. So how do you do this on the day of the exam? It's just going to look like a crap x-ray, okay? It's going to be white all over. Remember, white on an x-ray is fluid, okay? The other thing is that if there is a good amount of pleural fusion, you're looking at the costophrenic angles and they're going to be blunted, right? Very important to take a look at that as well. And then, what else you can see on the chest x-ray is what? On somebody that has CHF. Cardiomegaly, right? Cardiomegaly. And how do you know it's cardiomegaly? How do you know the heart is too big to be there? If you split that chest x-ray up into threes, and it's more than two-thirds of that, and that's that easy. There's nothing else. The other thing you might see is, depending on the kind of heart failure it is, it may be displaced to the left. So instead of the heart sitting like this, it's sitting almost sideways, and that's not good either. And that's not that it's sitting sideways, it's that it's growing to the side, because the left ventricular hypertrophy is actually probably what's causing the heart failure as well. Following along so far, we're good? Am I going too fast? Okay, all right. So, lab findings. CBC, CHEM7, chest x-ray, of course, EKG as well. Now, pro-BNP. I, I wouldn't do, the nine means nothing, by the way. I think I just didn't hit the parentheses shift or something. I don't know. So, pro-BNP. Now you know I type these things up. I don't copy-paste nothing. Um, so, pro-BNP. When does a pro-BNP become helpful to you? When you're trying to determine if this is CHF. But if somebody comes to you with shortness of breath, with a history of CHF, you don't need a pro-BNP. It's probably CHF, right? If you're thinking like, well, this patient has a history of COPD, and now they're coming with shortness of breath, and you're trying to do a pro-BNP, yeah, maybe you want to check out that they're not developing any CHF, and the shortness of breath and the DC on exertion is really just COPD. And that's the best time. When you don't know that it's a CHF, then you would do a pro-BNP. And what's the pro-BNP? It's really just a hormone released from your heart to the kidneys to tell the kidneys, like, yo, we're building up a lot of fluid here. You got to get rid of this stuff, right? The problem with this is that when there's renal failure, the kidneys already build up their own fluid, so it might already be naturally elevated. So if you have somebody that has an elevated pro-BNP, it may not be specific enough to tell you that it's CHF. It just tells you that there's fluid overload. And again, like I said, it's a hormone released to the kidneys to tell the kidneys, you got to let this fluid out. Okay? So if that hormone's elevated, that means the heart is trying to tell you, you got to get this out. There's too much fluid for me to pump. We've got to move on. Right? You need a diurese. You need something. So... It's telling the kidneys to diurese. And again, the other case would be if the kidneys are failing, they're not going to diurese. They're just going to get filled up with uh, you know, all that fluid backed up there. So what do you do for these patients? The first thing I do is give them oxygen because their complaint is what? Shortness of breath. So give them some breath. Give them some oxygen, right? Um, get axis, you know, uh, venous axis. Get something going for that patient immediately. I do give nitroglycerin. I give a paste, like a patch. And it's a half-inch patch. And really what we're doing there is we're vasodilating everything else, right? So now any small structure that was once small, we're going to dilate it so that everything can start to evacuate, right? It's kind of like if you had water built up in a house and it's all in the, in the, in, in the walls, 
what would you do to help evacuate the, you gotta break the walls so that everything just starts to get away, right? And that's really what nitroglycerin does. What does furosemide do and how do you give the furosemide? That's Lasix, right? So let's say they take 20 milligrams of Lasix at home. That means when they're in the emergency room, you're gonna give them 40 milligrams of Lasix IV. Take whatever they get, double it up, and give it IV. So if they take 40 milligrams of PO Lasix at home, you're gonna give 80 milligrams of Lasix IV and get that thing out of there. And that's really what you're trying to do, you're just trying to you know, you know, make the patient compensate for exactly what that, what's going on as well. Now, when you monitor the in and outs, what does that mean? How much fluid did I get? How much Lasix did I get? If I'm giving 10 mLs of Lasix, they better be able to pull out at least 10 mLs of urine, right? What you're putting in has to be what you're coming out, and really in CHF, has to be more than what you're putting in because we need a diurese, right? Now, one of the things that people get caught up with is, well, let's do a urine catheter, uh, catheter on this patient so we can keep track of how much urine is coming out. That's evil. You shouldn't just put a urinary catheter on everybody just to measure their urine. You should know that most of these things that you pee into have measurements in them already. So you don't need to put a catheter in everybody that has that. What's that? Yeah, well, if everybody, if they can't go pee on their own and you're like, you're trying to collect it, it's not going to happen either. you got to catheterize. I'm saying people that are up, talking, walking, and, and now you're going to put a catheter in them, that's evil. You don't need to do that. And because I'm telling you why, because people do this, well, I'm putting a catheter in just to monitor their ins and outs. Okay, why can't you just do that from, like, the little basin thing that they give them or the pee cup that they give them that have measurements, that have measurements. So don't, don't get into the business of, just putting a catheter in people. Why? Because you're putting them susceptible to more infections, right? Now they got CHF and a UTI thanks to you. So we don't want to. We don't want to get into that business. Okay. So most of these patients. Will, do you have a question? Oh yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. While I drink. Like, go ahead. How like, specific? Because sometimes it needs to be really specific. And like sometimes like. Specific for what? I'm not. Like, like the nurses don't. Um, I've seen that they don't document that like really well. So I, I like, would prefer to what? To visualize to have yourself. If you think the nurse won't measure the pee that they're putting out, what makes you think they'll measure the one that comes out of the catheter? Yeah. Your problem is the nurse, not yeah, the pee. They don't measure it, but I, when I, see, like, for example, I will tell you this. When something is not getting done right, do yourself. Oh, no, 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 no,
Do you have extra coffee? Can you give her something to drink? We get out at 12. That's good news. And don't come back. All right. So here's the thing. Because remember, I'm going to teach you medicine. But I'm going to teach you hopefully about life. Don't, don't take my other life lessons. I sucked at it. Okay? But here's the thing. If you were telling me that my hospital system does things like this, so now I got to do it this way. When I'm telling you that this way is wrong, you are yielding to a broken system instead of breaking, instead of fixing the system. Instead of like taking initiative and be like, yo, I'm not going to be catheterizing my patients, giving them a UTI because you don't know how to do your job. What I'm going to do is make sure that you do your job right, and if you can't do it, I'm going to do it myself so that this patient doesn't end up with a UTI. And I'll tell you why. Because that patient ends up with a UTI for the catheterization that you put because you don't believe in the system or the nurse, and they get a UTI, that whole visit does not get paid for. Because that catheterization was deemed unnecessary. You want to know how I know this? Because since 2018, it's a, like a mandate that that is not a reason to put a catheterization in somebody. Why? Because too many people were dying. Why? Because a nurse didn't want to measure something because she had too many patients. That's not my fault, right? That, and because ACA has a, a, a paper chart and not EM, that's not my fault. Now, a hospital is a lot more richer than you. It just happened like some nurse is going to prison yep. because of so many holes in the, in the system and she's going to prison for it because of what? And then so what, what did the hospital say? That's not my fault. It definitely is your fault. And that's why the, the big thing was, the controversy was that they weren't taking accountability that... What was that? She was running through like a code or something like that, and then she picked up the wrong medication and gave a sedative instead or something like that. It was a contraindication. And a contraindication to it, and the system didn't stop it, and, and the hospital found a way to put it on her. Why? Because she, no one before that put a stop to it. So if you start putting catheterizations on people that don't need it, one of us is going to end up in prison because of you. Do you want to live with that? I'm playing with you. <laughs> Go ahead. What do you mean? What's the question? Like, does the hospital have to, like, the, would the hospital cover the expenses of the patient? If, like, they do it all the time. For my errors? They do it all the time. Oh, okay. They make way too much money to let some, I would tell you most of the times in, like, like lawsuit cases, yeah. no one gets sued. It's always a settlement. This is, like, one of the evil things that... You basically say, hey, let's not turn this into a lawsuit. Here's a million dollars. And hush your mouth. Yeah, it's hush money. But what is a million dollars to somebody that makes three million a day? Right? right? So I was just talking about zero. Like, it didn't mean nothing. You, you are, you're, you're a number. You really are a number. Yes? Uh, infection control department in the hospital, you put that fully, make you remove it. In fact, they won't, let you, they won't even let you put it on now. Yeah. Yeah. You're done. You're done. You you not only do you have to. So if you started, well, I want to know what you're talking about for sure. So if you started that I uh, that you that uh, the catheter, you not only will have to. You're not gonna get paid for that visit, which by the way is like thirty grand. You're you're you screwed us out of that money, right? Um, number that's one. Number two, you'll be charged a penalty for $10,000. So now you lost us $40,000 on top of what you just did. 
Now, he brings up a good point. What's going to happen is that if that's the reason that you put it in for INOs, which is no longer a reason, infection control will come tomorrow morning and tell you, what kind of PA is this? Get this out of here. Get this out of here. Get this line out of here. Write her up. Because that's not a reason. Baptist takes it to the next step because they've been sued more. All right? They've had more lawsuits against them, believe it or not. They come in and they'll say, why do you want to do a urinary catheter? Oh, okay, I want to do it for INOs. That's not a reason. You better be doing it because they're brain dead. You better be doing it because they can't pee on their own because they can't, you know, whatever. Can they walk? No? Okay, they can do this on the bedpan. Because they, it's just been too many of these, you know, these infections that have been happening. Last question, then we move on. No question. Thank you for that. But I guess where I was uh, getting at, like, um, away from the infection, because I, I understand, but more so, like, when you, when you need to monitor it, monitor it hourly. Yeah. Um, and uh, not like a, like a 24-hour. I just, like, with the whole explanation, I just lost my, my train of thought about it. Right. So when you need constant monitoring, right? Yeah, like what degree of like CHF? You leave it there. No, what degree of like CHF or like So it depends on how the patient's compensating. If you okay, I'll tell you one more thing. If to the degree the monitoring is that you need to watch their INOs, it's every hour. You're right. Yeah. It's every hour, right? Those patients that need that degree of monitoring are probably in the ICU anyway. And they have a one to one, should have a one to one nurse. But did I already Probably, yeah, you probably, and you're doing more workup while they're in the, in the ICU. The first patient I ever, and I knew CHF, I, I think I still know it in and out now, is because the first patient that ever died on me was a CHF patient. And I'll never forget her, because I was 23, and every, it was, like, it got very emotional, because this is when I started learning, like, okay, you can't get attached to these people, right? And she didn't know what a PA was. She was, like, old. And so she was like 64. Her husband was like the sweetest guy. I think he's dead now too. This is in 2012. Uh, no, 2010. And so sweetest person. And I'm gonna tell you the story only because like you can't forget this. And so at that time, uh, she couldn't say my name, Abdul. So she would just say Dr. Sunshine. Because every time I would come in, people would always give her bad news. Like, hey, it's not looking good, it's not looking good. I'm like, I was like, what? who told you that? Bullshit. Here, look, we're going to start giving you a little bit more laces. And, and she would come, I would come back the next morning. And she's like, I feel so much better. And it's not. I only feel worse when, when it's at night. And, I, you know, I'm, I've been like this my whole life. And I'm like, because it's me in the morning, that's why. Right? <laughs> and she goes, no, that's what it is. And so she got used to just calling me sunshine, sunshine, sunshine. Right? And so, but I know why she couldn't breathe at night. Because she had orthopnea. I'm not going to tell her that, but the doctors will come in and like, yeah, of course you can't breathe at night because you're obese and this and that, and I'm like, uh, that's weird, okay. So I was like new to the game, right, like I'm, I don't believe in that, I believe in like really positive energy and like just the patient can get better on their own, the medicine is like addition to what you should be doing, right, and um, I was at that time, you know, like really good friends with like, like the techs and the nurses there or whatever, and I was on call one time, and I was always afraid to be on call because I was always afraid that they're going to call me one night, that she's not going to be getting back up, right? So they called me one time, and so I'll never forget it, 4.34 a.m., like I get the call, and I'm like, hey, what's going on? And they're like, hey, listen, uh, Martha wants to uh, just talk to you. 
and I'm like, all right, cool. Like, is she okay? Is she fine? No, yeah, no, she's fine. She's like, hey, can you come in earlier this morning? Uh, and I'm like, no, because like I don't, I don't want to wake up earlier. But I was like, yeah, no worries. I'll be there. Uh, whatever you need. Okay, I go that morning, and she had like, 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 like bread double cake or something like that. Something I had said that I love. And she told her husband, who was a volunteer in the hospital, to come get it. And I'm telling you, it's like a freaking movie. I'm telling you. And I got to meet him because I never, I always said hi to him, I didn't know who he was. And then so her problem ended up being, was like negligence, honestly. But I didn't say anything at that time because I'm 23 years old, right? Brand new PA, I've been here for like three months. And like I knew it was the nurse not giving the Lasix when she needed it. Not giving the, like, everything was like off task, but she was documenting that she gave it on time. But I was like, there's no way, right? The next day, I didn't get any calls in that, and I was like, hey, so I'm rounding on this patient, and I'm like, oh, where's Martha? She was in the ICU forever, like she was CHF, ICU, CHF, and they're like, oh no, we have to ship her out. And I'm like, okay, cool, that means she got better. If you leave the ICU, that means you got better, or you did it to the morgue. And I was like, I probably should have been made aware of that. They're like, nope, you're cardiology. We don't need to let internal medicine know about this. But here's your new patient. And I was done for like a week. Like I, I'm telling you, like I was like, I can't do this. Like I'm not, I cannot do internal medicine or, or any sort of inpatient medicine because I, 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 I attach quick to somebody. Like I, I, I'm one of those, like I fall in love real quick. Uh, I've learned to not do that anymore though. Um, not just with patients, with everybody. But anyway, so, but if you, but it, it's just, you will see things that you're like, shit um how do we handle this situation and and when i would ask her and she told me this she told me she's like look i just we got really busy in the icu i'm three to one right now one to one and i was like look man uh, i'm really new here but like that can't be an excuse like low-key i'm not saying you kill the patient but you kill the patient like like because she can't breathe like she the, the sad part of that is that i know how she died she drowned in her own fluids so anyway, so you can't let that, and that since then, I don't, I have very, and I don't care what a nurse will say about me. And, and most of them think I'm a nice guy. They, they, most of them think I'm a really cool guy, everything, this and that. But it's the one that I'm not happy with, and I'm just like, you can't be here, you gotta go. And, and it happens all the time, like, I, and then there's like, nurses that you know they're just having a bad day, they're overall good nurses, and you're just like, I'll ask somebody, I'm like, yo, is she good today? Cause like, it's not happening. And like, oh yeah, something happened in her family. Like, all right, cool. And then we work, we settle down a little bit. So always assess the situation, but don't, don't just neglect things. Yeah, no, I know it's, it's retarded, but whatever. Sorry, it's messed up. Um, so cardiac trauma. No transition to this again. I told you I'm not good at this. Um, basically, when somebody has blunt penetrating or non-penetrating injury to the heart, right? Most of the times in the boards, what the way you'll see this is usually gonna be somebody that's playing baseball, and it's always like the shortstop or the pitcher that throws the ball, and somebody hits the ball so hard, high velocity, and boom, and it hits their heart, and then they go out. What is that called, you guys know? What is that called? A line drive. <laughs> Not a line drive, what is that called? What is it called? It's a cardiac contusion, but what if they die from it? You guys don't know? Huh? Okay, I'm gonna show you. It comes up because I forgot the name, but hang on. So, uh, uh, it's there, it's there. I, I promise you it's there. Something Mortis, I can't remember what it is. Cardiac Mortis, I can't remember what it is. But, 
I had it in my head. Kumori Cordis. Kumori Cordis, that's what it was. There you go. <laughs> I, I, I was hoping you guys knew. I was asking. Um, so again, automobile accidents, also another one, MBAs. This is why when we question people about MBAs, when did it happen? Okay, where were you in the car? Were you driving? Did the airbags deploy? Were you wearing your seatbelt? Did you get ejected? Were there any fatalities? These are all questions that I'm asking you really fast, but I'm able to do this to you more efficiently and quickly because you switch, right? Yeah. Okay, all right. I'm able to do this more efficiently and, and, and quickly because I do it all the time. So imagine you get to do this all the time. When did it happen? Where did it happen? Did they have to take you out of the car? Did the airbags deploy? Were you wearing a seatbelt? Did anybody else pass out? Was there anybody else in the car? What part of the car got hit, right? And what you're doing really is I'm, I'm documenting mentally in my chart that when I go sit back down, that's the way it's going to look. You know, word by word, whatever it is. You know, what you're going to tell the scribe when you sit down. So gunshots, stabbings, these are, you know, all very common things that can happen as well. Uh, but remember that any part of the heart can get hurt, right? So we for, you can't forget the coronary <laughs> arteries that are going to get hurt, the, the valve that can get hurt, the, you know, the uh, ventricles can get hurt. So it depends on what exactly is happening. You have to determine what the, the treatment is going to be for the patient. This is why trauma is super intense. I love it. I just don't like the lifestyle of it. Um, growing, not growing up, I guess growing up, uh, when I was in school, there it is, Commodio Cortis, okay. Um, going uh, to school, and actually just graduated already PA school, some of the best trauma surgeons are females, okay? I don't know why, and especially in Memorial, there was like only female PAs for their cardiac, or not the cardiac, their trauma surgery team, like, but you couldn't mess with them. It's the one time I was intimidated by a woman, one time. <laughs> The second time, actually. The first time was my mom. She intimidates me sometimes. Not anymore, though. But um, um, it was the second time because these women, like, you, when I, when I, listen, man, I'm, I got to a point where I'm like, I can save your freaking life. And I'm at that, now they want to intimidate me now because I have a little more experience. But at that time, like, just meeting that, I'm like, hey, how are you? Like, I don't know if you guys met Maggie. Have you guys yeah. met Maggie Gonzalez yet? But Ma Maggie's a trauma writer. Now she's there? Oh, well, she was in Memoria before. Is that what I'm talking about, Maggie, the tall one? And now she does, like, reproductive medicine also? That one? Yeah, okay. So Maggie, let me tell you, when I met Maggie the first time, I was like, and I will say this, she knows this too, I was like, super crushville. I was like, oh my God. Because, like, a woman, like, intubating, or a woman, like, doing a chest tube, or a central line, all right. <laughs> that, that's it right there that's it and then you know it happens like slowly all the time right they're like yeah and then you know with their hair and I'm, like, and I'm just like oh my god and that, she was just doing it on a mannequin I was like okay um, that's that's like that was for me the thing and they, they were so intimidating in that the way that they walked like the scrubs they wore they wore black scrubs and I'm like everybody looks good in black scrubs okay so I was like just taken away from these people, but their lifestyle sucked. Like, they were there, they're like, oh, hey, huh? I'd, I'd love to be part of your team, even though I know I'm never going to make it, right? But it's like, no, yeah, we work 36 on, and then 72 off, I'm like, no, <laughs> never mind. I'll never see you as hot as you are. I'll never see you. <laughs> Why? I'm not going to do this. So, But you see, like, the way that cardiac trauma works, the way that overall trauma surgery works for a PA, it's intense, and you have to be, you, like, it's not that you have to be physically hot, you just have to be, like, hot, like, in here, like, you gotta be 
super confident because you cannot mess up because you literally are the last provider that patient might see before life or death. Like, real talk. So you're probably all that they have. We're not going to go too much into other cardiac. We are going to talk about cardiac tamponade, though. Um, so we know about this already, right? Um, don't sit there on the exam waiting for somebody to tell you, Bex triad is positive. It doesn't exist. That doesn't happen. Don't sit there telling, waiting for them to tell you they have hypotension. No. They're going to give you the vital signs of a patient, and you have to determine that the blood pressure that they gave you is hypotensive. Then they'll tell you that there's some sort of vein sticking out on the right neck. They're not going to tell you JVD. You need to know that that vein that they're talking about is the jugular vein, and it's distended. Okay? They're not going to tell you there's uh, muffled heart sounds. They'll tell you there's distant heart sounds, or heart sounds that are red, like lightly audible, okay? or not readily audible, something in that nature. So you have to understand that eventually they're trying to talk about Bex triad, okay? And then what else is happening? Did the patient have pericarditis before? And they skipped the whole picture. That yeah, they had chest pain that got better when they leaned forward, but then since then, they just haven't been doing well. They've become hypotensive, they got JVD, you can barely hear their heart sounds. Before there was a pericardial friction rub, now there's no pericardial friction, you can barely hear anything. And so set yourself up for that picture. Start thinking, and if you feel like you're not at that level where you're not thinking at the level that we're at right now, start studying. Start getting used to it. Start doing other things than just studying because it's not going to happen from the iPad and the MacBook that you're looking at. You might have to do some like shadowing one day or two days. Like, find out other ways to see what it really does look like, other names that these things could happen. So we already talked about Bex triad. There's also something called Pulses Paradoxus, which is a 10 to 15 millimeter of mercury drop in systolic blood pressure with inspiration, with inspiration, okay? So yes, take a deep breath in while I take your blood pressure. We don't, we don't even take blood pressures like this. This is like not a thing. Do you know how we take blood pressure? Like this. And watch, right? Make sure it's on. There's, there's a few times that's happened. Now, pulmonary emergencies, what we're gonna do about that is we're gonna be reviewing your chest x-rays, we're going to go over asthma, COPD. We're going to talk about pneumonia and pneumothorax as well. Uh, but first, you need to learn how to read chest x-rays. And I know you went over this with Professor Hadid, right? Perfect. She's amazing, by the way. I saw her the other day at FIU, and I was like, yeah. She what? Yeah, I know. I saw her. I saw her. Excellent explanation there. So take a look at this. This is the level that you should be at where you have to look at a hundred normal chest x-rays. I'm telling you right now, if you're sitting in this class and you're just wanting to go into Durham and aesthetic medicine, don't waste your time with this, okay? But if you want to be really good at medicine and you want to be the badass of medicine, you got to do this on your off time, okay? You got to not want to go to the wharf, that's what I call it, because it makes you vomit every single time, okay? The wharf or Wherever it is, if you're going out somewhere, and I know it, it takes you three hours to get ready, that's just me, okay? <laughs> Spend the hour before the three hours to look at a bunch of x-rays. And if your friends ask you, bro, you're still not ready? Nope, because I'm getting ready to make a million dollars a year. <laughs> getting ready. That's what I'm getting ready for, right? I'm about to go and spend a million dollars tonight, or a hundred bucks in your case, whatever. Um, but eventually, you want to get to the point where 
you're thinking about going out tonight, and it doesn't matter who's got you. You got you, and you got the rest of the team, right? We all made it, right? We all gonna eat, right? And the only way to do that, believe it or not, is to read 100 normal chest x-rays. Why do I say that? Because if you get this good at something, I can tell you what's what on the right image. You're at the level of the left image, and that's okay, because that's where I was. But you need to get at a level where you can read these x-rays all day. Because if you rely on the radiologist all the time, they miss things, just like you, right? You have to go in there and take a look at it as well, all right? This is a normal lateral. We barely look at these lateral images, but sometimes it helps, especially if you're looking for like um, extensive cardiomegaly or in another patient, like you would see a barrel chest. What two patients can you see a barrel chest on? Emphysema <laughs> mm -hmm. and COPD. Name me one more. Hmm? What's something that presents like emphysema? But they're not a smoker and they're young. Antitrypsin. Right? It gives you the same appearance on the x-ray too. It can give you the same appearance on the x-ray too. And that's the way they're going to sell it to you. It's going to be a young male, 26 years old, that doesn't smoke. Right? And they're going to give you that barrel chest. What are you going to do? Right? So very important. Look at the patient. What do they look like? Okay? How big are they? How small are they? Are they a smoker? Are they young? Are they old? That's really important for us, right? That's all there. Are they a female? Are they a male? Are you looking for, you know, they can have long curvy lines, but if they're a male, it's like gynecomastia. You could find other things, right? The shape of the patient, the position of the patient. If they're like this, does that mean they have scoliosis? No, they're just sitting like that, right? Look at, look at everything on the patient, right? So, like I said, and then what lines have we put in? Because a lot of times we'll do chest x-rays just to see if my line is in place, right? Because if I'm doing an internal jugular line and it goes all the way down and my idea is to go into the tip of the right atrium, do I not want to see that the tip of my line is in the right atrium? Or should I bring it back a little bit because it's in the ventricle? That's happened. Or should I push it down a little bit, right? Because it's coiling up top. So these are important things. What else is it? Do they have any pacemakers? Do they have any stents? Do they have any valves, metallic valves? What else is happening with the patient? Because all these things need to be taken a look at. But don't just look at the chest. Look at the neck. Look at the shoulders, right? Look at everything. Look at the diaphragm. If my diaphragm is flat, it's probably, again, like emphysema, right? If my costophrenic angles are blunted, it's probably a pleural fusion. These are definitely things that you have to be on top of. And you, you, you have to be on top of, not the radiologist. You have to be on top of. You don't, you lose two minutes. And I don't think you lose them. I think you gain them. Two minutes by looking at an x-ray, by looking at a CT scan, just going back down. Now when you, like, if you come shadow me or, or you come to, like, rotate with me, we do this. I, I send you into a room with the radiologist or the, with the radiology tech for a good two hours. Just look at it. Get used to being in the dark like Batman, whatever it is, you know? Like, get adjusted. Like, do what you have to do to get great. If you're here to be good, you're gonna suck. No one's gonna hire you. I'm straight up like that. But if you're great, we'll pick you up. And they'll pick you up. So think about that as well, okay? So again, look for things in the interstitium. Look for, you know, 
uh, inflation? Is it hyperinflated, right? That just means that they take in too much of an air, and now I can see the whole freaking lungs, or hypoinflated, that I can't see anything, I need you to take another image, right? Masses, nodules, right? All these things you get. There's, the other day I found somebody that had, t we were just talking about it the other day too, and it was TB. But long time ago, they had a gun complex on their x-ray, and I asked them, like, hey, did you ever have TB? Oh yeah, when I was a child in Cuba, I was like, get out of here, I knew that, by looking at your x-ray. Simple stuff like that, and, and, and you look good, you look good, you look good, and if you look good, you feel good, right? So that's important. So pay attention to the blood vessels, because that's important, especially when we're trying to rule out, rule out a pneumothorax. If you can't follow the bronchioles all the way out to the edge of the, of the x-ray, there's probably a pneumothorax, and we've learned how to kind of sort of look at that as well. Right? So very, very important. So look at the APCs now. Usually in the right upper lobe is where you see your cancer, but a lot of times your acute tuberculosis also lies in the APCs as well. They could be anywhere, but most of the time they're in the APCs also. Okay? Look at the hilar part, right? If I tell you that there's bilateral hilar lymphadenopathy, what are you thinking? Sarcoidosis. Right? Really, really important. Okay? Uh, look at the back of the heart. Look at the cardio, uh, cardiophrenic angles, the costophrenic angles. All these things are very, very important. So why do we talk about this in emergency medicine? Because this is the most ordered modality of all time in emergency medicine. We do this for everything, not even pulmonary related, right? For foreign bodies, for placement of tubes, placement of lines. Don't you want to see if you're, if you're, um, you're, you're, uh, Jesus, ET tube is in by the carina instead of going into the right pulmonary bronchus or main bronchus, that's important. So this is why we go with this in, um, in emergency medicine a lot, okay? So, what's that? How much does that cost? A single view is about 200, a uh, double view is like 230. Yeah. You trying to get one? <laughs> I got you, no, um, So, again, you can look at the ciliate signs, air bronchograms, extra plural sign. This is like stuff that I put in there just so that we can, you know, get acclaimed or acquainted with it and then we're going to go over it in a little bit. Now, the next patients that we're going to be talking about in the emergency room are asthma patients, okay? So obviously the first thing that you're looking for a patient with asthma is wheezing, right? And they're probably going to be the patient that comes in that already took medication. Then they'll tell you, yeah, I took albuterol, uh, ipitropium, uh, I took my steroids, none of it is working. None of it is working. I feel like I can't catch my breath. So first thing we're going to do, connect them to the O2 monitor, connect them to oxygen as well, right? See what else is going on with them, help them breathe better. Now, it doesn't matter, most of the time it really doesn't matter how much albuterol they took at home. I give them back to back to back treatments of albuterol and epitropium. Okay, what we call a duonep, right? Just back to back to back, like... Once one's done, the next one, the next one, the next one. Before I even do all that, I get something called a peak flow, right? How hard, now how much, how hard can you expel out the, the, um, the breath when you're that constricted? It's important for me, because then I can tell, did the treatments make any difference? Now, in your boards, and, and, but not everyday practice, in your boards, they'll tell you, hey, if, these, if the dual naps didn't work, if the albuterol epitropium didn't work, then you should give steroids. We don't do it like that in the emergency room. We give both at the same time. I'm not going to waste my time. Because we found that, yes, just the back-to-back -back treatment works a little bit, but that, that uh, you know, 
inclusion of the steroids is what really makes them feel better, okay? And then there's other things like you can give them magnesium, uh, you know, magnesium sulfate, by the way, um, because we had a patient two days ago, and I asked the PA, uh, not the PA, the attending, to like, hey, order me some magnesium um, for this patient so I can, I mean, the kid was like really in trouble. And she ordered magnesium citrate. What's magnesium citrate? It's a laxative. <laughs> good, good. Well, I don't know how that helps with wheezing, but good. And so I sat down and the pharmacy called me. She's like, hey, um, your patient that's basically dying, four-year-old, uh, do they have constipation also? I'm like, that's a weird question to ask me. You're good, you look great, you're fine. <laughs> She's like, all right. <laughs> this is just one of the things that I see. You have to see the other things that I see as I move around the room. Man, I see some funny stuff, man. And I take that with me, honestly, to home. And I go back to sleep because I'm like, <laughs> and that's literally how I sleep. Sometimes I sleep like this, but it's okay. It's okay. Um, so, but at the end of the day, uh, God damn it, asthma, sorry. Um, so at the end of the day, you have to know what you're ordering. So that's an attending, right? And, I, and she was just having a long day, bad day. I'm like, hey, you ordered magnesium citrate. She goes, no, I didn't. I ordered magnesium sulfate. I'm like, no, you didn't. So make sure you know what you're ordering because they don't let you order it. You cannot rely on a computer to tell you what to do. Yes, we put multiple soft spots or stops and, and to stop you like, hey, are you sure? This patient's dying. Maybe you mean magnesium sulfate. We can't do that to that point. You have to do that. We can't think for you, because then anybody could be a PA, right? Right? Okay, all right, so that's just, I'm playing with you. <laughs> so at the end of the day, you have to use your own intellect. You gotta see what you're doing. So with this patient, first thing you're gonna do is test the peak flow. How much can you expel out? Anything less than 60%, you're in trouble, okay? Because you should be at around 80%, but less than 60% needs admission. So let's say, let's say we have a peak flow of, 35%, that that's the, the max that I can push out. And how do you get that? How do you get what they're supposed to do? Where's that percentage coming from? The percentage comes from, based on your height and your age, you should be blowing around 500 mLs. Okay, let's say they do that. You should be blowing around 500 mLs and based off your age or, and, and, and your height. The problem with this test also is that if it's anybody over the age of 75, there's no studies behind it, so there's no peak flow. And you'll do nothing. You just gotta give them their, their measurements of like uh, epitropium and albuterol off the top of your head. Believe it or not. Why? Because we assume that they're probably not gonna be dealing with asthma. It's gonna be COPD anyway, right? And that's not really an issue. That's not a constriction issue, it's an obstruction issue, right? So, back to this patient. Let's say it's 500 mL. Whatever the age and height we have a patient, we determined that their expected value should be 500 mL. That's their 100%. And then they tell you, okay, well now, what they're pushing out is only, somebody on the left here, hang on, shit, hang on. It's only 200, all right? They're able to expel out 200 mLs instead of 500. So what percentage is that? 40%, so we're in trouble. Okay, so now you take that 40% and you tell the respiratory therapist, I want to give back to back to back albuterol with epitropium okay so they'll give it to them and you just see them there like they're like smoking a pipe 
they're just smoking it away and inhaling it. And there's, oh, I'm starting to feel better. I'm starting to feel better. Now, how do you check if the air is moving? You remember that stethoscope that you got? And you put like your name on it and somebody bought it for you and like, oh, PA, whatever. And then, you know, you put a heart on it because like you could pay for that extra engraving, right? So then you listen to their lungs. Oh, they sound better. Okay? And I'm telling you right now, and I think it won't happen to you now because I'm telling you, in the beginning, you're going to be like this, listening to somebody. This Parkinson's happens in the beginning. But that's because you don't know or you think you don't know what you're doing. But if you go in there, I know where to listen to the lungs. I know it's in the latter formation. You know this. You know this. You, you got to just execute it out. That's the beauty of going on a rotation is that you have the knowledge. It's just you're nauseated with it. So just throw it up like every other Friday night. Just throw it up. You'll feel so much better. Okay? And that's really what it is. Just bring it out. Bring out the stethoscope. Okay. All right, good. Okay, cool. And then what's happening? That's me doing it, right? And I'm like, all right, you listen to them. Yeah, I, I can do that. <laughs> no, you know what you're doing. Get in there. And like, because I, when I have a student and I see it, because I know it's their first time maybe even touching a patient, they're like this. I grab their hand. And I was like, take it easy. You look like a loser to get this together. Oh, but you're so mean. Then you can go because the next one is ready to listen to the lungs. You, you got to get going. Honestly, like I'm not trying to be mean to you. I'm going to get the best out of you because I know you're one of the best. I can't get the best out of you if it's not in you, right? But if I know it's there, I'm going to bring it out. And, and it's in all of you, believe it or not. It's in all of you. You were asking me a question. I've been dying to say it. Oh, my God, please, go ahead. I've been dying to hear from you. What, what was you know, it? you're saying we know the, the lateral yeah. corners, yeah. Mm-hmm. But if, like, personally, if I heard something abnormal, I yeah. wouldn't know. Right. I know that. But I, I ask you to listen to it, and I tell you, what do you hear? And you say, no, it doesn't sound normal. Right? That's an okay response, then. It sounds normal. Oh. Right? Yeah. <laughs> this is yeah. that out of a lecture? <laughs> So it's okay. We know that you don't know. You're a student. We know that you don't know. We know that you've been listening to mannequins. We know that you've been listening to your friends that are all normal. What happened? Is it good? We're good? Yeah, yeah. Bathroom meeting. Okay. What time is it? Oh, we're chilling. They're going to miss out because this is the best part of the presentation. I'm lying. I'm lying. None of this. It's all the same. It's all the same. So now we're back to this patient, right? So we see that they expelled out 40%, right? Now, I see that, okay, one or two treatments, they did a little bit better. The third treatment, they did, I feel it, I hear it, that they did a little bit better, right? I gave them the steroid, and any steroid you want, go for it. You want to get prednisone, you can get prednisone. You want to give Decadron, six milligrams, eight milligrams, go for it. You want to give Solimedrol, go with Solimedrol. I go with Solimedrol or Decadron, whatever's available. It all does the same thing. It really all does the same thing. It's all for the inflammation. That's the problem with... With, with asthma, right? There's constriction. There's inflammation. That's really what's happening. So we got to decrease the inflammation by giving steroids. We got to give, uh, we got to dilate it because it's constricted. So we got to dilate the bronchioles, right? So air can start moving. And that's what happens. And, and the wheezing happens like that. Because if you have a closed space and air goes through it, kind of like when you whistle, when you have this 
big mouth sounding off, you can't really hear anything. But when you close it and throw air through it, it'll create a whistling sound. That's, that's what asthma is, right? So we open those bronchioles up a little bit, and now air starts to go through it, okay? Then what you do, you do a post-treatment peak flow. So now that I gave you back-to-back-to-back -to -back -to -back treatments with steroids, maybe magnesium, you're going to probably sound a little bit better, but you're going to feel a lot better. And then when you do the peak flow, then it'll tell you, like, oh, the peak flow now is at 72%. Obviously, there's less closure, right? We're much more open and letting air out. So that's how you manage an asthma patient. But here's the thing. These patients can get bad real quick. So if you don't take care of them and if you don't monitor them, I'm telling you right now, an asthma patient, the typical length of stay of an asthma patient in the hospital, and I'm talking about if you saw me within 25 minutes of arriving to the emergency room, you're probably going to be here for at least four hours. That's okay. That perception, that expectation of somebody coming in and out of the ER is not a thing. Eliminate that perception. Well, I got discharged from this place in two hours. Well, you weren't dying. You're dying right now. So it's going to take a little bit longer. And that's okay. Don't, don't say it like that to the patient who get fired. But like, you have to say, hey, look, I understand, but this is a little bit more severe case. No one patient is alike. No one's case is the same every day, right? So monitor them because if you are very reluctant to keep these patients, they will go home and they will constrict again and they don't have the back-to-back -back treatments that you have. They don't have the IV steroids that you have. They don't have the IV magnesium that you have to maintain them and they will probably suffocate to death. And they're gonna come back, and now instead of a non-rebreather, you need to put them on intubation and embed them. So, do we, when the patient comes with the asthma attack, do we with the, the, the nebulization? I start with the peak flow first. If I know that this is asthma, I give them oxygen, and then I give them a peak flow device first. Okay, nebulization and IV steroids. I, I look at them maybe 30 minutes after their treatment. 30 minutes after their treatment. I do the peak flow, or the therapist. For how long do you wait? Do they have, they have response, I could respond. 30 minutes, 30 minutes, it's immediate, it's immediate, absolutely. And you ask them how they're doing. But a lot of times, if by the fourth hour, they're not doing any better, they gotta get admitted. Okay, question. Yes, every six hours, every six to eight hours. Yeah, but also sometimes what you do, uh, her question was, with a patient that does get discharged with asthma, what is the timeline of how often you can give albuterol to those patients? It's every six to eight hours. But the short-acting albuterol is a rescue inhaler, so you could take that immediately if you wanted to. And this is why I love giving the albuterol inhalers instead of the machine, because why? When you're gasping for air, you have to be there, connect the machine, turn it on, put the liquid, screw it back on, and wait for it to like warm up and then send it to you. Whereas the rescue inhalers, one, two, done. And you have to sometimes convince patients that, oh, no, no, but I like the machine, because they think the machine is stronger, and it's not. It's actually the same amount that you get, you just get it a lot quicker. So I definitely uh, would help you to emphasize the inhalers for sure. Okay, uh, COPD, there's two different types. There's obviously there's chronic bronchitis, there's emphysema also as well. The chronic bronchitis patients, you know these as your blue bloaters, right? 
and that's because they're constantly in a hypoxic state. The thing that you need to remember for these patients is that in the exam, they'll come up to you and they'll say they have a history of COPD, they're having trouble breathing, their O2 saturation right now is 83%, okay? And you give them a little bit of oxygen at four liters a minute and they go to 89%. What's the next step that you wanna do? The next step that they're gonna want you to do is give them more oxygen. No, you will kill the patient. Because the uh, problem isn't saturation, the problem is obstruction, okay? That is where they live at. They live at 89%, they live at 92%. That's where they live at. Don't get into the business of fixing a number. Fix the patient. If they're feeling short of breath, it's not the 89%, it's the obstruction. So what do you do? Same thing almost like asthma. Steroids, albuterol inhalers, right? Or and whatever it is that you need to do to get them out. These patients, unlike the asthma patients, are more likely to get admitted because these patients can go south much quicker, much, much quicker, okay? You'll be working them up and now they're struggling. Here's the thing that we forget. We use muscles to breathe. We forget that. We think we just use our lungs. But in order to elevate our lungs, we need the diaphragm, which is a muscle. We need the accessory muscles, right? We, which is a muscle. We need the accessory muscles, right? We need all this stuff, right? Now, if you keep using a muscle, regardless of the weight on it or not, you just keep doing this, it's gonna tire out. That's the problem with the COPD patient. They're gonna keep huffing and puffing until they're tired and they're too tired to even breathe. So what do we do? The next step after the nasal cannula is to put a BiPAP on them. The BiPAP puts air in and lets them take it out. And we push the air in because you can't do it for yourself. And it's one of the most uncomfortable thing in the world. It looks cool and great like Darth Vader, but it does not look comfortable at all. And it's like we're literally pushing oxygen inside of you. Now how to manage that is something that you may have gone over in pulmonary, but I'll break it down for you real quick. Before you put your patient on that BiPAP, you wanna get an ABG, okay? Not a venous blood gas, an arterial blood gas, okay? Venous blood gas, we'll talk about it later where you can get it for DKA, but here, you want an arterial blood gas. So you wanna determine if the patient is going to respiratory uh, distress, respiratory acidosis, or alkalosis, we don't know. Based off of that, we can determine how much air needs to go in and go out. Why? It's very simple, right? Because if I am not breathing enough, right, if I'm not expelling out enough, that means I'm keeping the CO2 in and keeping myself acidotic. So what does that mean? I need to make them breathe faster, right? Okay, so what are you gonna do? You're gonna turn up the inspiratory rate, right? I want you to breathe 12 times, okay? Is that a race or something? Or chairs? What is that? Oh, okay. I thought people were like racing like computer chairs or something. A lot of traffic on the way back. <laughs> uh, okay. So, okay, COPD. So again, now you can determine what and how much you're going to give to that patient. Because if the O2 comes back and the O2 is like 62 on your ABG, then you know you need to probably be at like 40% of the FiO2. Now, that's okay if you get the numbers wrong at the beginning. I always start at like 12.6, meaning 12 times going out, or 12 times coming in, six times going out, or whatever it is, or backwards, 
because depending on what your 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 pH looks like, right? That's going to be important. Okay. And then I can mess with the if I always start with a 40 FiO2 just because like that's my comfort, right? Then what do you do? Anytime you make any change to the patient's breathing status, so you go from O2 saturation from the nasal cannula to the the BiPAP, or if you make any change to the BiPAP or the vents, check in another 20 minutes, the ABG, okay? That's why in the ICU you'll see patients, instead of doing an ABG every 20 minutes, we had them on an arterial line, okay? Which is something that you probably should learn how to do as well when you move on. Um, and I hope this rotation is still there, but like the ICU rotation in Maine Baptist is essential. Like, it, that guy's awesome, okay? Uh, he does, he do a lot too. So, very important that now we look at, okay, based on the changes that I made on the BiPAP, what do I do for this patient? Do I go up on the inspiratory rate? Do I go up on the FiO2? Do I need any PEEP? Which means there's, PEEP is the constant, like, like um, elevation in the lungs, that, that constant pressure that you're, you're leaving there. And that's really what's happening. It's like you're giving a patient continuous, or not continuous, but like you're giving them positive airway pressure, like by, like back and forth, back and forth. Whereas CPAP is continuous positive airway pressure, right? Just constant airway coming in, okay? So that's how you manage a COPD patient. But be ready, because if that BiPAP doesn't work, no matter if you're like at 100% and you've tried to make them breathe in and out as much as possible, now they're getting tired even with the BiPAP on, you gotta sedate them and you gotta intubate them. Okay, very, very important. You gotta be ready to intubate these patients. Uh, and emphysema is essentially the same management, except they don't get that crazy in the, uh, in the emergency room. And I kind of went over all this with you, about what to do with the COPD exacerbation, what to do, be ready to, I did all this already, we're good. Did all this. Yes. Okay, so some of the complications again, remember that you're putting a BiPAP on this patient, remember that you're probably going to be ventilating this patient through a ET tube, they can turn into a pneumothorax, right? They can also get ventilator-associated pneumonia. And what's the bug behind that? Pseudomonas. So be ready to treat that, okay? They could even develop a pulmonary embolism. Also got to be on top of that, okay? They could even develop an acute abdomen. They might even develop some peritonitis, you know, while being on this. So multiple things that you got to be ready for. That's the beauty of the ER, that it's not just one thing. You got to be ready. That next step that I take, what sort of consequences or benefits can it have for the patient and myself, okay? So again, we, I think I went over all this in that same one patient that I was talking about, okay? So pneumonia, okay? The most common, again, is gonna be community-acquired pneumonia, streptococcal, it's gonna probably be the one that you see. Mycoplasma, also very common back out in the, in the, in the system now as well. Um, look for the patient that is dying, really. Like, they're coming in super sick, and if you think about it, especially in young, especially in the old population, they're not gonna come with a fever. They're gonna be confused, may have a cough, do a chest x-ray. Okay, and, and anybody with fever, I usually do, and I don't know what the origin is, do a chest x-ray. There's pneumonia, that's like a silent pneumonia. Okay, you never know what's there, right? And then you determine if you need to admit the patient or not, and that's when we use what? The CURB 65 score, right? Are they confused? What's their urea look like? Their BUN, is it more than 30? Is the respiratory rate more than 30, right? The blood pressure, is it low? And are they 65 or older? and any one or two points on that, you gotta admit the patient. Know where the patient is coming from. 
Is this somebody that's out in the streets and was drinking and coming into the emergency room now? Because it's probably going to be what? Klebsiella, probably some sort of aspiration pneumonia, right? Know the type of pneumonia you're presented with by the x-ray that you're looking at. If it's a diffuse pneumonia, it's probably an atypical pneumonia, right? Patchy infiltrates, we see this all the time now. COVID is literally patchy infiltrates. Mycoplasma also is a diffuse pneumonia, right? Uh, Legionella, another diffuse pneumonia. But like things like streptococcal, that's something that you want to look at maybe more like lower pneumonia. It's in one spot, okay? Very important. So what do you do for these patients? Well, based on my CURB-65, I need a BUN, right? So I need to do a chemistry on that. I want to make sure that they're, no, they're not leukocytotic, right, or cytosis. That's going to be a CBC, okay? Is this patient going to be admitted? If the patient's going to be admitted, then you do blood cultures first and then give them the, the IV antibiotics. Why? Because if I do the IV antibiotic, I'm killing the pathogen, and it won't show up on the blood culture, okay? Very important. We forget to do these simple things, okay? So simple, reliable patients, right, you could probably send them home. The ones that you worry about are the ones that you're going to admit. Patients with HIV, you have to think about the fungal pneumonias, right, PJP, PCP, those are important. And if they have cryptococcus that comes up in the blood culture for an HIV patient, think about them having meningitis as well. Cryptococcal meningitis, which is found in what? Like, what do you do to test for cryptococcal meningitis? India Inc.? India Inc., right? Do you guys know that? No? Okay, definitely know that, for sure. So when you touch for, like, the CSF and the meningitis for cryptococcal meningitis, is India Inc. Okay? You should have done that in, in India Inc., I-N-D-I-A, Inc. Yeah. Okay? So tuberculosis. We, we've gone so nonchalant with, like, masks use. We forgot that we had to wear N95 masks, right? We totally forgot about this, right? Um, not that your mask's not working, Thompson. Good job. I'm going for you, all right? But really the masks that we need are the N95 masks, right? We forgot about it. We just wear regular masks. But tuberculosis, for sure you need an N95 mask, okay? And you definitely, this is one of the reasons that we've seen that a lot of our healthcare workers were getting tuberculosis and we were losing people, right? So... Believe it or not, we have less of a threshold in getting the, the PPD test. So the induration, okay, is really important, not the height, okay? The induration of when they do the PPD test on you is different in different populations. For instance, if you're immunocompromised or HIV positive, right, you're only allowed a five millimeter um, induration in circumference. Anything more than five millimeters, that is somebody is, um, that is uh, HIV immunocompromised, that's TB, and they need a chest x-ray. Healthcare workers, which is you, even though you're a PA student, you're still in the healthcare field, you're gonna be on the rotations, you're only allowed 10 millimeters now. Back in the day, when you were just another human being out there, it was 15 millimeters, you were cool if you were 15 millimeters. But now you're a healthcare worker. We have to give you that less much of a, of a, of a threshold to be able to make sure that you're okay and you're healthy, okay? So what happens if you have a positive test? You gotta do an, an x-ray, okay? That's important. You could always do the quantiferon gold test, you could do all these other tests that, that are available to you, but in the emergency room, you have to understand what questions do you ask the patient? You have a cough, do you have any fevers, any night sweats, any hemoptysis, right? Any, any blooding cough, like already you're thinking it could even be cancer. 
right? Except cancer doesn't come with fever, right? So start thinking about that. Any recent travel, especially to a country that TB is the thing, right? So you have to understand that. Or you're on a plane and, and somebody has TB and you didn't know it, right? People are not gonna, like, you do this to yourselves all the time. Some of you low-key went out with COVID. It's all good. I'm gonna be honest with you. I had COVID, I was working. Because, absolutely, working with COVID. You wanna know why? Because I got it from work anyway. <laughs> what am I gonna do, give it back? You're welcome. <laughs> like, yeah, so, and then it got to a point, like, you had to work. They were, if I didn't show up to work, they had to, not that they were gonna shut down the hospital, but like, who's gonna see the 80 patients? that are there waiting for us, right? So, you know, what do you think people with TB? They don't, they think it's just another COVID. <laughs> like, you just get on the plane, you're fine, except they're dying, okay? So, you have to know <clears throat> the history. You have to know, again, looking at the chest x-ray. Is this acute? Is this gonna be the APCs? Had they had this in the past, it could be a gone complex. Is this a, a miliary tuberculosis where there's like seed-like presentation on the chest x-ray? That's important to take a look at as well, okay? <clears throat> So reactivation um, TB will be in the lower lobes, really important as well. You might even see some pulmonary um, atelectasis or pulmonary fibrosis in these patients as well. The big thing here, though, is you have to know the treatment for, um, for tuberculosis, okay? And it's ripe, okay? And it's going to be ripe for about, like, three months, okay? So rifampid, okay, isoniazide, presentamide, ethambutol. Not only that, these are medications that you need to know the side effects of. I don't know if you guys went over this in Pulmon or not. Yeah. yeah. Okay. The first three medications, RIP, rip your liver. They all will cause hepatotoxicity. Okay. Rifampin, that whole, oh, it turns your orange, your urine orange and your, your tears orange. Yeah, everybody knows this. It's not a thing you're good. INH toxicity or INH uh, problems would be like, hey, uh, they're having peripheral neuropathy, you may need to give it like B6 and stuff like that. That's what you need to remember. Yeah. With ethambutol, you need to know that this is something that can affect the eyes. <laughs> I know that because E is eyes and E is ethambutol. That's how I remember that. That affects the eyes, okay? So know which ones rip the, the liver, know which one affects the eyes, know what to do with INH as well. Very, very important. So fl flail segments just basically means, okay, um, there is something that you do in the physical exam, like on your OSCEs and every day, and you wonder like, oh my God, am I ever gonna need to do, know this in real life? Is a thoracic expansion, okay? So if I'm behind the patient and they're breathing like this, there's something going on on the right side here, right? Something is not expanding that air. It could be a pneumothorax, it could be anything, but more than likely it's going to be a pneumothorax. Very, very important. Most of the times these patients are going to need surgery. We have to find out what is causing that flail segment. Why is the, the lung not expanding to the, to the potential that it can? Okay. What's that? A broken rib. A broken rib, yes. So chest wall injuries, right? Uh, so again, when you have a chest wall injury, so somebody with rib contusions, somebody with rib fractures, regardless of a fracture or a contusion, these things hurt real bad. Why? Because every single rib has an underlying nerve on it. We know this because when we studied anatomy, we remember van, right? Every single one has a vein, it has an artery and a nerve, van, right on it, right? That's why when we do a chest tube, we don't do it under the rib, we do it over the rib, okay? Because the bottom of the rib is lined up with the nerve, artery, and vein, okay? And we start doing chest tubes, teach you, which is gonna be in July, by the way. So we'll go over on how to do a chest tube. Um, 
But regardless, the thing that I send patients home with, there's no splints, there's no ACE wrap when you're doing a, a, a rib fracture. There's nothing like that. It's just let them breathe, let them expand. Because if they don't, they'll start to develop atelectasis. But they do need pain medications, okay? They need narcotic pain medications, believe it or not. Not the contusions, the fractures. What they should also leave with is an incentive spirometry, which basically lets them do an exercise, a little physical therapy at home, where, hey, you have, that's the, when you breathe in and there's like a little ring that stays floating, and you have to let the ring float above that yellow arrow as much as possible. You don't know what it looks like, take a look at it. Go to the respiratory lab and ask them, like, what is an incentive? We might even have some. I think we have some, the incentive spirometry. Look at what they look like. We might actually see it this summer. So what that does is allows the lungs to expand because just like everything else in your body, if you don't use it, you lose it, okay? And when you have atelectasis, that means that those alveoli didn't get used, didn't get expanded, so they just shrivel up and die and they collapse. And what does that do later on? You can't breathe like you used to. And your fracture could heal, but your lungs haven't. So very important with patients with fractures of the wrist because they don't want to breathe because it hurts to breathe. You give them the pain medication and you give them an incentive spirometry to go home with so that they can continue. And it's done every two hours for two minutes, for 20 minutes. They have to be able to do it. If they don't, it's a lot more trouble in, in the future. Tension pneumothorax. We're almost done, right? We're like 10 slides away, right? Okay, so tension pneumothorax. This is a progressive buildup of pressure inside the pleural space, which pushes the metastinum to the opposite side of the hemothorax. Basically, there's so much pressure, it moves everything to the side. That's why, before we even take a look at it, this is the thing. You really don't, you know how we see, oh, I see the trachea aligned? Okay, here's the thing. You're looking, and they, one of the things they teach you here, which is wrong, okay, is that in a patient with pneumothorax, you, I'm not imitating anybody, by the way. In a patient with pneumothorax, you'll see a deviation of the trachea. You will not on the physical exam. Because take a look at x-rays in a pneumothorax. It's not deviated here. It's deviated below the clavicle. And you can't see the trachea on, in real life, like below the clavicle. So don't look for that. You can't be like, oh, the trachea is midline, so there's no pneumothorax. Uh, no, definitely not. The pneumothorax and the trachea deviation is found on a chest x-ray because you, the trachea doesn't start to deviate till the pressure is much more stronger on the bottom, right? So that's where you start to see the deviation. So don't just count on that. So what do you do with this patient that comes in? Oh, I can't breathe out of nowhere or maybe some sort of trauma. And the best way to find this, I've always said this, if you find a pneumothorax on the chest x-ray, like that's where you find it, you're too late. You should have found it on your physical exam. And I'm not talking about, oh, it's, uh, it's hyper-resonant here. No, that's not a thing. It's simple. I hear lung sounds here. I don't hear them here. The same way that I do here. Here, not so much. Here, not so much. Here, not so much, right? So like, you have to take a look at it. I mean, if, if it's bilateral, you're screwed, right? Or get a new stethoscope. Make sure that the bell is turned off and the diaphragm is on. Did you know you could do that? You guys have learned that by now, right? Okay, it's the class next door that doesn't know how to do that. They're gonna be watched, because I know some of you are like, what? That's what the other side of the stethoscope is for? Tell me, tell me, raise your hands for real, like if you, that you're like mind blown, right? It happens, it's cool. It's a thing, it's a thing. It's, and you'll never use it, you'll never use it. You'll never use the bell, like it never happens. But still, you should know that that's 
something to look for, right? So make sure your, your stuff is working, okay? Then you're like, okay, this patient might have a pneumothorax, let's confirm it with a chest x-ray. While we're doing that, set up for the chest tube, because the chest tube in itself doesn't take that long. Go ahead. Only, only if the blood pressure is low. So needle aspiration, good question. So the needle as, uh, as, um, decompression is done at the mid-clavicular line. And don't get fancy. Mid-clavicular is a fancy name of in the middle of the clavicle. Okay? So grab the sternal notch. Grab the AC joint like this, just like this. Okay? And get to the middle. Then count to rib. That first space is your first intercostal space. That second space, doesn't matter how big they are, like, I'm not saying I'm big here, I'm just saying, like, I can <laughs> still feel it, okay? Right here, go down in with a needle decompression and you'll hear it. And one of the most fascinating sounds in this, okay? That, and the next fascinating sound is when you go into the chest and you go, and that's the greatest sound in the world. Or there's blood that comes out, either way. But at the end of the day, they feel a lot better, okay? Here's the trick on this, though. If you do a needle decompression, you still need to do a chest tube. It is not. The definitive treatment, definitive treatment for a pneumothorax, tension or normal, is a chest tube. They still need a chest tube. They'll try to get you on that. Yeah, if you've done the needle decompression, you still need to do a chest tube on that patient. Very, very important. So we're saying when they're chemotherapy unstable is when you do a Yes, exactly. When they're dying on you, needle decompression. And then and then you do the and then you do the chest tube on that same side. Because if not, you just cause a pneumothorax on the other side. Does not matter. Does not matter. Does not matter. Only when it matters is and it's not gonna have an attention pneumothorax, is that if the pneumothorax is less than ten percent, then it's just oxygen. But I never like it never presents itself like that. It's always like 14%, and then you got a chest tube that, right? So and then you got to monitor them. You have to monitor them, see what's going on. So how do you measure the percentage? Well, you look at the whole chest wall and say, okay, that's 100%, and this much is missing. That's like 10%. That's it. That's all that is. Very very simple. Yeah, you don't want to be like you know 10 or 9.5. Yeah, yeah. You, you want to do these things. You want to do these chest tubes. They're fun. Okay. So, where does the chest tube go? The chest tube on the same side of the pneumothorax goes mid-axillary line, so your axilla, mid-axillary line, fourth or fifth intercostal space. They'll tell you nipple line. I don't really like to rely on that because it depends if you're, it's a male or a female, right? And then it depends on the male also, right? Because they have like gynecomastia or they're super rising. You never know. Nowadays, you don't even know. You don't even know. Right? So what do you do? The old-fashioned way, feel the ribs. Feel the ribs, feel the fourth or fifth intercostal space, go on top, mark it with a surgical pen, okay? Get it confirmed by somebody else, and then the next thing you're gonna do is you're going to anesthetize the skin, then you're gonna anesthetize the periosteum of the rib because that's what you're gonna be touching a lot, okay? I don't sedate my patients during this, okay? Trust me, they're already like super high on, oh, on the adrenaline that's about to happen, okay? and you give them a good amount of anesthesia, 10 mLs, 12 mLs of lidocaine. Don't be afraid. Go into the track that you're gonna go into. Click on the bone or touch the bone that you're going to touch and inject the bone, you can. I know you think like, well, it's hard, it's not, it's gonna, just trust me. It's gonna go in, it'll be fine, okay? And as you're going out, 
keep giving lidocaine as you're going out because that's what needs to be numb when we go in. Then the next thing is you find that spot again that you just went into. You get an 11 blade, nice like one inch cut. Good 10 millimeters, eight millimeter cut, okay? Open it, get deep into it, okay? Then you're gonna get your Kelly clamps and we're gonna do this all at one time. I know it sounds super cool. You're gonna get in there and you're gonna rip through the muscles, rip through the fascia and you're gonna keep doing that. And then you're gonna pop the pleural. And don't be afraid to pop the pleural, okay? That's when you know you're in, okay? Once you pop, you'll expand coming out, expand coming out, expand coming out. And you'll see, if it's a hemothorax, it's gonna have all blood. If it's a pilothorax, it's gonna be all pus. If it's a pneumothorax, which most of the time it is, it's gonna be all air. And then you put a finger in there and you'll line it up, line it up. Why? Because the finger is the same size of at least a 32, 34 French two. Okay, very important. Now in this, the bigger the number, the wider the, the two. So 32, use 32 French is usually what you want for a pneumothorax. 36, you want that for like a hemothorax. Okay, very important. This is the old-fashioned way of doing a chest tube. There are now Seldinger techniques, which means what we do is that we find it, we inject the area with lidocaine, and we go in there with some saline, we go, go in, and we start to aspirate. And we aspirate until we see bubbles come out. You see the bubbles come out, then you know you're in the pleural space. You take that needle out, Oh, you also already made like an incision, right? Then you put the wire in. You put the wire in to keep intact of the, the space that you have. You take that out. Then you put a small, itty bitty, maybe 12, 14 French catheter, and I'm gonna show you how to do this as well. And you put that into the lung space. And you connect that to the floor back. And it expands. So it's a very small tube. So what does it do? It leaves a smaller scar. It's usually fine. You probably are not gonna do this during trauma, but. I'm gonna show you what each one looks like. I'm, I'm gonna try to get the rep here to show you how to do that one also, because that one is more fun to do too. It's just a little bit less fun because it's like less messy, but it's like not as like invasive for sure. Makes sense, everybody? Uh, these are all the physical exam findings that you know so very well, right? This is important. Physical exam is key. Using your stethoscope is key. You find this on chest x-ray, you're too late. You gotta, you gotta be good enough, you gotta be great enough to find this on your own, okay? An open pneumothorax basically means now that there's a gun or there's a stab wound or something else and they might have a sucking wound, okay? So you gotta be ready to uh, do that as well. We haven't done, when's your first suture lab? Really? Like like July? Probably. Really? Yeah. June is fine. I'm okay with June. We should do it in June. I'll tell you why. Because part of doing the pneumothorax treatment or chest tube is that you need to know how to do hand ties. Anybody know how to do hand ties here? One or two people usually know how to do. Nobody knows how to do it. Okay, cool. All right. We're fine. Uh, hemothorax, same thing, except now you're going to have blood that comes out. This could be from rib fractures, trauma, multiple venous injuries. So now tell me what this chest x-ray looks like to you. Hopefully you have this on presentation mode. Or if you're like Mike, you could be like 10 slides behind us. <laughs> what do you see? Left pneumothorax. Okay. Ah, we really needed the laser. Dang it. Okay. Because you see that on the right side of that patient, 
we could draw out the bronchioles all the way out, right? I'm going to try to do this here. Oh, yeah, good idea. You should be a PA. Okay. So here, you see how it stays white where the bronchioles keep going all the way out. There's no stop to it. They kind of go all the way up to here, over here. It's hard to see this on the computer screen, but here, they stop. You can see this faint line here. See that? See that faint line here? That's the lung right there. Okay? Now, what else is important? So we found the pneumothorax on this patient, right? We can see that uh, they're also deviated here a little bit to the left, right? But the deviation, look at that, doesn't start really until past the clavicle. You can't see this in real life. You can't see this in person. You can't see this on the chest x-ray. The clavicles look fine. The ribs look almost like they're intact. This gets a little confusing here because you think it's a fracture, but it's the lung that's overlying the shadow of the, of the x-ray. This thing right here, this bubble, gastro bubble. What happens if I showed you a kid with a bubble here and a bubble here? What are you thinking? Who said it? Duodenotrasia, right? A double bubble sign on a kid is duodenotrasia. Very good. How'd you know that? I taught you this? Oh, oh, okay. Good job. It's a good professor you have there. Um, look at the diaphragm. Diaphragm's somewhat like flat-ish, right? Can't really tell. This patient may be somebody that had an emphysema in the past, had some blebs, and they grew up into a, a pneumothorax. Could be. I don't know. It doesn't matter. We still got a chest tube this patient, right? Good, sharp, claustrophenic angles here, right? There's no fluid building up here yet, okay? That's how you look at an x-ray. Let's look at the next one. This is not a double bubble, by the way. You know what I just realized? That when I tell you to go get me matcha, I automatically assume you didn't put anything in this drink. I don't play with you. What I get on my matcha? Oat milk, matcha, and sweet foam. What were you expecting? All right, so what do we got? What, it, what looks weird here? The what, this looks weird, right? Don't worry about that. Don't get distracted. What about this thing here? Right? It's lobular, like it's in one lobe, right? So it's probably a pneumonia. Or it could be what else goes up on the APCs? TB, right? But it's a right upper lower lobe, a right upper lobe uh, pneumonia, okay? What about the heart? Yeah, heart looks kind of weird too. It's a, it's almost like a like a boot-shaped heart. Where do you see a boot-shaped heart? Petrology for low. Good catch. Okay. Look at the whole x-ray. What's missing there? What side? Where is the perfusion? Right, because look at this crustophrenic angle over here. Where is it here? And this is pretty intense. This probably needs a thoracentesis as well, right? Other than that, I don't see any pneumothorax. Everything goes out to the set. Look at that. Everything goes out. This is borderline, borderline cardiomegaly, right? These buttons, what are they for? 
the ECG leads. Okay? They also got a catheter coming in here, right? That might be a pick line coming from the arm almost, looks like. All right? That's how you need to get. That's how you need to get to, to that level. So it's a right pleural fusion. Good job. That's all the way on the bottom. The fusion is going to be on the bottom. That's where they're going to they're going to blunt the cuspophrenic angle. What about here? Cardiomegaly, yeah. Yes. What is it? Don't whisper it to me. Say it out loud. Be confident. If you yell something wrong, it's wrong. That's it. Don't be afraid. Just don't tell me like, oh, that's a fracture of the leg. Like that. That's weird. That's not even wrong. It's just weird. Okay? CHF. Right? There's just congestion all over the place. Right? These are the curly B lines. Look at how they're going straight up. See that? And the cardiomegaly. What about this? Is this a male or a female? Who knows? <laughs> this is a difficult one. <laughs> that was weird. <laughs> <laughs> there it is. See that? That's the hilum. And there's an infiltrate there. Okay? So, the most reliable clinical assessment tool to confirm tracheal intubation is what? You gotta watch it go in. Not an x-ray, not your stethoscope. The stethoscope is gonna tell you that you're in the wrong place, right? The chest x-ray will tell you in the wrong place. Both's gonna tell you you're definitely there. The right visualization, right? So you could use the, the camera scope or you could use your eyes to watch your eyes to look at what's going on. That's a very common question. That's it for today. Any questions? <coughs> the next thing that we're doing is GI. And we're doing it on Friday. Friday, this Friday. This Friday, yeah.